Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Hello, and welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Adam Smith, and it's my pleasure to be hosting this show, which comes to you from Helsinki in Finland, home of the Moomins, Saunas, and this year's 33rd Alzheimer Europe conference. As ever, in these conference highlight shows, I'm joined by researchers who are going to share their event highlights to provide a snapshot of what's been talked about across the week. We hope this will help those who couldn't be here and those who have access to the online platform and are just looking for sessions that they haven't missed that sound great. But that's enough from me. Let's meet the guests. With me today is Dr. Victoria Shepherd, Dr. Danielle Jones, Dr. Monica Leverton and Caroline Bartle. Hello, everybody. Um, Let's start with some quick introductions, and I'm going to go around the table, starting with Danielle. Danielle, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. I am Dr. Danielle Jones. Um, I'm an Associate Professor at the Centre for Applied Dementia Studies at the University of Bradford. Uh, My main roles there are to teach on our Masters in Advanced Dementia Studies programmes, and I'm also uh, a researcher, so a conversation analyst, and interested in medical communication. Um, I'll talk more about my highlights. Brilliant. Thank you for coming. Uh, Caroline, what do you got next? So, yeah, I'm Caroline. I'm come all the way from New Zealand, but actually I'm from UK. So I'm founder of Three Spirit, which is was a training consultancy. So over 10 years, we trained over 100,000 staff, developed over 500 programs and did a lot of work in dementia care. I moved to New Zealand a year ago, um, but I've been on my doctorate studies for a very long time at Sterling. Um, and my research interest is in workforce development, but looking at how we learn in the flow of work rather than sort of learning in more sort of traditional forms of training. That's a big move. Well, thanks for joining us. And you didn't add as well that what you did tell me earlier off off air is that you listen to the podcast all the time. I like that we get listeners on the show. Yeah. Right. Thanks, Caroline. Victoria. Hi, so I'm Vicky Shepard. I'm from Cardiff University. I'm a senior research fellow, a nurse by professional background. Um, and in Cardiff, I kind of have a mixed role, I guess. So involved in clinical trials and lots of other types of studies, uh, a lot of them in care homes for older people, but also lead a program of research looking at inclusivity research with a particular focus on people who might not be able to provide their own consent to take part, uh, which might include people living with dementia. Perfect. Thank you very much. And last but not least, another newcomer to the podcast, yeah. Effie, uh, Monica. Yes, new and verified. And um, I'm Dr. Monica Lepton. I'm a researcher at King's College London. Um, I'm in the NIHR Policy Institute for Health and Social Care Workforce. That's the new, brand new policy. Yes, and our title is H-Scrape. That's <laughs> <laughs> good. Okay. <laughs> um, most of my work is dementia, uh, dementia care workforce, uh, using creative methods. So ethnography, uh, anything to do with kind of visual and animations, illustrations, um, and how that can enhance and increase accessibility, particularly for people living with dementia and research, and also care, the care workforce who maybe aren't so used to being involved in research. We've just had a really great co-production workshop using illustration with those groups. Um, and I also chair the Home Care Research Forum, which is what some people might have heard me from. And that's, is that around, particularly around domiciliary care? Yes. Ah, which is, we know, we've talked about this on the podcast before, really under-researched area is domiciliary care. Yeah, and there's a really, you know, sort of pool of researchers that look into home care research and 
we're all kind of connected in some ways and it's, it's quite nice to kind of have the key people who, who do similar things, but we're branching out and especially connecting home care providers with researchers has really come on in the last couple of years, lots of different forums and groups for that. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, all of you, for joining us. Uh, let's get to the highlights. Before we get to the highlights, I'm going to give anybody a chance who would like to to talk about, because I think all of you have been presenting some of your own work this week, or posters, or some of you have. Uh, who would like to go first? Victoria. So I was presenting today some of the work I do around uh, inclusivity in research and uh, the challenge of involving people who might not be able to provide their own consent to take part and thinking about the kind of ethical challenges, but also the kind of methodological, practical challenges that uh, researchers encounter. So I was presenting the work I do called the Consult Programme and giving a kind of overview of some of the innovations we've developed through that that can support people to be included in research where they might not be able to provide their own consent. And that includes uh, an include framework we've developed to help researchers design studies to be inclusive of people that fall into that group. Uh, and then also interventions to support families making decisions uh, as consultees and legal representatives and how we can support them through that process. Um, and then more recent work looking at how we might encourage people to express their views in advance about their kind of research wishes. So the same idea that we have around uh, advanced care planning thinking about people's research wishes so advanced research planning uh, that's already a thing in australia isn't it so australia, australia you're right uh, already have a form of that canada uh, america have <coughs> some forms of that but not necessarily widely taken up uh, and so the work i'm doing is looking at whether it's feasible acceptable in the uk and learning part of that will be learning from international experiences so I've got a Churchill Fellowship. Oh, that's cool. We might continue you back to talk about Churchill Fellowships because I think that's one of the Churchill Fellowships. So one of the, there is a brilliant program and I don't think dementia researchers know enough about it or even know it exists and that they'd be eligible to apply and could make use of that. Exactly. And they're really exciting. They are. So what we're going to do is we'll make sure in the show notes, we put a link to the work you've done on <laughs> that because I think we've shared it on the website recently on your guidance and we'll put one to the Churchill Fellowships as well. Monica. You've been presenting two? Yes, we've had uh, two posters. Okay. And both from the same studies. It's the Dementia Champion study that I'm the principal investigator at Kings, then which is almost coming to an end, so it's due to end in December, so it's quite a good time to come here. So um, they were quite different, the posters. So one was about the use of illustration um, in the project and how that advanced co-production. Um, so I can say a bit about that start. So um, it was essentially just talking about the process of how we um, we worked with an illustrator who joined us in the workshop um, and rather than so the workshop had people living with dementia home care staff including managers care workers and some family carers and and we were talking about uh, so we started the dementia champion project learning about the role across health and social care nationally and internationally the workshop was really to rein in on how that could apply to home care specifically in the uk so we had a room of people who either had lived or working experience in home care and rather than us as the research teams taking minutes and making our notes the illustrator visually scribed the workshop and that was live so everyone in the workshop could see the illustration as it was being developed and say well actually I don't think I meant to say that and didn't quite capture what I meant there you know so they had a chance to kind of add in and feedback and um so these really nice looking scribes were produced and then at the end the he went away with all of the notes and 
uh, produced this model of a dementia champion. So you know, a large figure of what a dementia champion looks like, not physically, but in terms of their role and tasks, their skills and values, and then kind of our key question, which is and how to support dementia champions in the long term. So that's been a great sort of elicitation tool that we now take to our last phase of interviews with home care workers. So where we're asking, you know, is this role wanted in home care and could it work? What are the barriers? Uh, rather than just, you know, saying an abstract role to them, we can actually show them and we work through the, the illustration. So the, the poster was essentially a giant blown up version of that illustration. And um, we had really nice feedback on that and lots of people engaging. And the second day, yesterday, we had another poster, which was more academic, maybe. So very visually pleasing still, I think. Colors are nice. But uh, yeah, it needed to take longer to kind of look at it and work it out. Um, but that was theory of change framework, working out the mechanisms of action to make the dementia champion role work. And I won't say too much about that. So. Well, I imagine that's something you've got to publish as well, right? Because, I mean, implementation yeah. is such a hot topic right now because I think, uh, particularly in qualitative research, people are starting to feel the frustration of, developing awesome interventions that you build up the evidence base to show it works, you publish, and then move on. Because your next grant's got to be about something else. And there are a few individuals who cling to that somehow, and they end up taking up a little bit less time than before and somehow cling to it to try and make it work. Well, I think we've, we've, we've certainly got some blogs and things talking about the potential ways to take a intervention and make it into the mainstream. Anna Volker has talked about that for us before as well, but I'd love to know more. So you'll have to come back and tell us more about that. Um, great. Well, I'd see we've already got two amazing conference highlights already. I'm going to come to Danielle first. Two presentations. Two uh, oral presentations. Yeah, I didn't even both. Um, so the first one, um, so both of them were based on a project that I've just led that looks at how um, we're interested in how clinicians communicate dementia risk to patients in different settings. So the first uh, presentation was on the work package that looked at how pr uh, primary care GPs uh, communicate dementia risk. Well, if, when, and how they do that. Um, so exploring, we interviewed 11 GPs about their experience, uh, their knowledge and experience of dementia risk factors and whether they communicate them. Yeah. Ooh, how did you find those GPs? Dif very difficult. <laughs> it was a very difficult <laughs> that's, task that's to recruit right. GPs. Also as well, do you only then get people who are confident that they're going to come out well? Yeah, and so we do. Uh, so one of the, I guess, not limitations of the study, but one thing to consider is that all the GPs or half of the GPs were part of our dementia education programs or alumni of our dementia education. So you'd expect it to be pretty So well. they were interested in it. They, uh, yeah, they have a elevated knowledge you would expect. So we do, you know, caveat our findings in that these are people that are, have a specialist knowledge in dementia. They're not everyday GPs, but still given that uh, when it came to GPs awareness, there was nobody that uh, was aware that or mentioned that TBI was a risk factor for dementia. So none of the GPs mentioned that when we asked what are the, you know, modifiable risk factors for dementia. Um, and then uh, only one of them uh, knew about the associations between hearing loss and uh, less education. So they were made, knew more about cardiovascular risk factors rather than the, the other aspects of risk. Um, so Andrea uh, Fonseca de Paver was the researcher on that project and she presented that on Tuesday. And then 
yesterday afternoon. The days just mould into that one. Yesterday afternoon. Day two. Day two, whatever that was. I presented the second part of that project, which was looking at um, how psychiatrists communicate dementia risk to people that are being diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment in the memory clinic. So really the secondary prevention of people that are already identified as being at risk. But um, it's suggested that if you, you know, offer people at that stage risk advice or mitigation advice that they can avoid or delay the other set of dementia. So making some of those particularly in vascular dementia. I know we talked before about lifestyle changes and yeah. things that might yeah. delay some of these. Yeah, so modifiable factors. So we really wanted to look at how that's done and if there are successful ways of giving that risk communication as part of the kind of bigger jigsaw of how we get people to modify their lifestyle risk factors if the evidence is telling us that we can delay our chances of getting dementia by about 40%, you know, uh, how how are clinicians responsible for communicating how patients and people generally can do that. And whether it is, uh, so I showed yesterday that quite often the techniques that clinicians use are resisted by patients, so they're already going out of a clinical consultation thinking that they don't really need to change their behavior or skeptical about what they need to do. So, so yeah, just really tying in with like advice about how clinicians could possibly communicate dementia risks so that patients already in the consultation are on board with the, the strategies they need to put into place. There's already a theme emerging here, isn't there, from all of your work, which is you've all discovered something that could be improved upon. And the challenge now is is actually, obviously, you've pr- produced your toolkit, which which is there and available. But of course, just just because you put it online doesn't mean anybody will actually download. You've got your intervention and yours. You've got some advice that's into trading. I need somebody to pass that along to now, don't you? Say, so there you go. <laughs> I've done this now. That isn't just a publication. Caroline, have you have you made some discoveries that you need? To, what what have you been presenting all this week? Well, I've had a poster um, here this week, and it's, um, I think it's my first proper poster, um, but it's evolved through many years, actually, of work, and it's very um, related to implementation science, because it's all about my frustration of taking research over the years, and then trying to teach that to different groups, and then monitoring the impact of the social enterprise we were looking all the time at the changes that were happening in organisations or not happening. So uh, as I got into the theory and the research, I started to understand that there's this whole body of work around workforce development that's all about the activities and systems within organisations that required a slightly different approach. So then the pandemic happened and I got really interested in technology. So my um, poster title is how do digitally mediated practices influence epistemic practice but essentially my poster um, was looking at four main things so organizational learning so i'm really interested in how technology can enable us as organizations to work with each other and to have an impact on our society so there's a kind of moral responsibility also around epistemic practice, so looking at how we learn in the flow of work and how we work together with the tools that we work with. Um, having a, um, blended learning, so looking at all different technologies, including VR and digital care plans, how all of those things intersect. And then a big part of it is around data and how we use data, because a lot of the data that we use currently is um, derived from compliance regulation 
and there are a lot of problems with um, that because it's quite limiting in terms of data that we collect. And we, it's about the velocity and the variety of data, not the volume of data. So lots of really interesting stuff around how those different technologies um, intersect to enable us to make change in organisation, which is all about implementation science. There we go. There's definitely a theme there. And technology actually has been a hot topic this week. There's been multiple sessions on data and technology. But let's thank you very much, everybody, for sharing. All your work sounds amazing. Do send me your links and we'll include them in the show notes. But for now, let's get to the highlights. Great. Okay, so we're back. And now we're going to get round to the real highlights, which is what uh, everybody's here to talk about. I'm going to come back to Monica, first of all. Monica, share your first highlight with us. Which one to start with? I think I'm going to start with my sort of favourite overall message. So it was actually um, today's session. So it was the, the kind of quick, uh, you know, 12 speakers in one session. It was about psychosocial interventions. And it was actually the 12th speaker. So I paid attention. <laughs> well to done. <laughs> it was um, Stuart Duggle. I hope I'm saying that right. Dougal Duggle. Um, who's from the Scottish Dementia Working Group. And actually, funnily, he was talking about the use of animation. So I think my ears pricked up at that point. But um, part of his you know, five-minute talk was about his journey and sharing his journey. And he ended with a slide that had kind of his five key points, which he really tries to, to live by. And I, I wrote those down. And um, so the five things he's found really helped him to, to deal with living with dementia is to, one, have a focus, two, have a routine, three, keep motivating yourself. Four, keep trying things that you're struggling with. And five, live your life. And um, I just thought that was a really powerful message. And everyone in the audience really seemed to, you know, people were asking them, can you put your slides back up? Can we take a photo? Can we use those five points? I think, I mean, I agree. I mean, they're good messages, even even if you're not somebody living with with the disease as well, are they? I mean, they're good things to live by. Did anybody else go to that session? No. I found the oral sessions quite difficult there because they were very quick and fast. I always wanted more more from them. It's better for my attention span. I like a quick start. Yeah, I have to say I'm with you on that. I kind of like five minutes, because, particularly then because I think it stops presenters doing that. We've talked about this, that, that kind of safe space you start with, which is a slide reminding everybody what dementia is. Yeah. How many people? Yeah. Like this is yeah. How many people that the symptoms? <laughs> that there's no cure. And I think when you've got five minutes, you don't waste time on that. You get straight into it. Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you very much, um, Victoria. So I'm very interested in inclusivity and also public involvement. And what came out throughout the whole conference, I think, was those two the intersection between those two themes. Um, so how we can improve inclusivity in research through public involvement and how we need to be inclusive in our public involvement activities. And that was a really strong message for me kind of throughout, throughout the conference. And particularly today, day three, uh, there was a whole session on uh, patient and public involvement research that spoke to those themes very strongly. One of the messages I took away from the first speaker, who's Dr. Sarah Griffiths at UCL, um, who's written podcasts, books for us before. Exactly, exactly. And she was talking about her, her, her lived experience group who has supported her Pridem project or their Pridem project um, and um, has also done some work around uh, evaluating how that lived experience group had contributed and, and what they took away from it. And there were really strong quotes from that that I think will probably stay with me. And one of them was from one of the uh, lived experience group who spoke about how actually contributing to a co-production project 
was very different. And they said that normally we just quotes in a paper. And that really struck me that I'm as guilty as everyone, I think, of using quotes from people. And this was, this was actually them bringing to life the fact that, yes, being included as a quote is nice, but actually true co-production is even more meaningful in terms of involvement. Um, and I think that will probably stay with me from the conference. I, I still think co-production is one of those areas that's just going to continue to develop. And it, it kind of seems to redefine itself regularly as we think of things that we didn't imagine the first time around. So the first co-production studies were a bit more like public engagement and then they've gotten better and better and better. Um, and then we continue to learn in that. Yeah, and, and part of what Sarah and the team did was to ask themselves at the end, was this co-production and to reflect on you know, the definitions of that, but also how it had felt as a group and what they took away from that, which I think, again, is a, is a really good message for people. It's really hard to get right, but when it does get right, I think it's what you get out. It's really powerful. Thank you. Did anybody else anybody else see anything on co-production or PPI? To the same session, I'd found it equally as kind of inspirational about co-production. And I think the message I took away at the end of it was that I guess the future is when we stop seeing people with dementia as involved in our research, but as researchers on an equal level, that's when we won't need the debates about, you know, co-production or involvement because it'll come naturally to us as researchers that people with dementia are part of our research team as researchers within their own right. Um, so I think that was a really powerful message to us to stop seeing people with dementia as an add-on. But, you know, the, we hear it all the time, nothing about us without us, but it is so true that, you know, we wouldn't be here if people didn't have the disease and they are the experts. So I, I found that I found that session really quite powerful in how people have applied that and the learning they've taken from it. So I also think it's really important, and Sarah did this really well, is like reflecting on, you know, what the challenges are, you know, the financing of people living with dementia in research and the bureaucracy surrounding how we pay them for their involvement. Um, and, th and those difficulties ref reflecting for other people, how they overcame those challenges, which is really the really important issue yeah. for if we're all aspiring to engage people with dementia meaningfully in our research, there are obstacles that we've come to face. Is it easy enough that you should just be able to say, well, the research brings the research skills and the person with dementia brings the lived experience and you work together? Or is there something here to be saying, well, to be able to understand each other's perspectives as well, it would help if the person with dementia had had some basic introduction to some of the research principles and how research works and the, the methodology in a way that, that's training both could, because they'll help you to understand what it what it's like to with dementia and you can explain to them, you know, how research works in that way. So and also Sarah spoke around kind of adjusting the power differentials. And I think that kind of idea helps, you know, toward the Yeah, because they they're not feeling quite so looked down upon like, oh yeah, well it's got to be like this because that's how it works. And I can see that well hopefully that doesn't creep in because you might. I think on the first day as well, and I I can't remember her name it was, it was a woman who was part of uh, one of the dementia working groups, someone with lived experience. And she said, you know, people often make the assumption that people with dementia can't learn anymore. Was that Pia or Lilo? I think it might have been Pia Knusden, possibly. Anyway, yeah. But that, and that was her point. She was like, we, we can learn. We can learn new things involve us. Yeah. We're doing, we're doing a project at Bradford at the minute that's looking to evaluate the involvement of people living with dementia in designing a master's level dementia education module which we've designed from scratch and um, with 24 people living with dementia in the research team 
um, and we're evaluating that. But one of the things that we were really keen to do at the start of that project is to give people with dementia the tools that they needed in order to be able to design education curriculum. I, I will, let's move on to the next highlight. Um, so, we're, Monica, you've shared your first Victoria. I'm going to come to Caroline next. Um, so I was really interested in the dementia design because I've been teaching it for about 10 years and then since I've taken on this new role, I've been auditing. So I, I really like the talk by the lead on my notes here, Dr. Kevin Charis from France, and he was exploring the homeostatic value of space to prevent maladaptive behaviours. I have had an issue with the language a lot with the sessions here, and I have thought that they are... Um, very non-inclusive, yeah. To and even as an experienced um, professional and closet academic, I still find it very difficult, you know. And and that that title is is just the same. So his work was looking at basically understanding the environmental triggers, and that the the way that the building is actually designed can cause the problem. And so it's looking at sort of environment person bits. And um, he used an analogy, which I've heard used before, um, but not in this way, where he describes um, being on an aeroplane and actually the experience of being on an aeroplane where you're told to sit in a particular place, you're restrained, you can only have your meals at a certain time. And so um, you respond in a way, and those responses include... Um, pacing, agitation, anxiety, potential arguments. So his point was this is a normal behaviour, but when we um, look at it in context of a dementia environment, it's called BPSD. And uh, what was really interesting, because I read the paper later, was he was talking about actually the stress that's caused, you know, stress can impact our HPA access, which... Um, axes which then impacts a hippocampus so it causes cognitive problems stress and then he went on to talk about actually you know the way that buildings are designed could be artigenic in a way you know they could be um, harmful so there's been a lot of work as we all know around dementia design and that paper really was insisting that you know architecture is much more than just a place I can get that. I think the challenge with this is is that that's great, but they're not about to demolish a, thousands of care homes and rebuild them, are they? And I think it's what would be interesting is how you can adapt what you already have to make sure that you're taking on board the lessons we've learned from design. And, and one of the things that we're doing at the moment is working with architects to think about how we can build design flexibly mm. because we've got lots of different um, cohorts of different people coming through We've got um, potential threats in the future. You know, in New Zealand, we've got concerns around weather. We've got potential pandemics alongside very diverse populations. So we need to build flexible buildings. So yeah. technology plays a role in that. I think also as well, I can see how that would... As when you buy a new build house and they give you a list, don't they, of the things... I don't know, I've never bought a new house, but I know that they say, like... Which, how would you like your kitchen and what work surfaces do you want in your bathroom? If you move into a nursing home, it's like, there you go, there's your, there's your room. I guess there might be some options on colour. I think you can see how future design is so smart now that flexibly being able to move walls and space and change colours in different ways to make people ha feel like they've had a say in how they 
how they live is important as well as then the stuff that they put in it, which we've talked about on the podcast before. I'm going to move on to the next highlight. I'm going to come to Danielle now. Yeah, so um, I think my highlight with my personal interest in uh, dementia prevention has been on the amount of uh, prevention research across been loads. conference. Um, yeah, so there was a, a plenary and then I think every parallel session there was something on prevention or risk reduction. Um, and one talk that stood up uh, particularly for me, I'm just looking at my notes, is um, Sophie Fraser, who is the education lead uh, Brain Health Scotland and she was talking really about the importance of taking a real life course approach to dementia risk reduction so we shouldn't be thinking about it when we're having problems later in life but we should be thinking about how we um, look across the life course and focus on children and how they understand how to improve their brain health and adopt really healthy lifestyle behaviours um, throughout the course of their life and she's her her title of her project was Reach for the Stars, uh, the My Amazing Brain Schools Program. Uh, and it just stood out for me because, one, is she was so enthusiastic, she was a brilliant presenter, which always helps. Um, but they're going into schools and really promoting, you know, the connection between, you know, the stars in the sky and the brain connections in your head and thinking about all the ways that you can improve your brain. And STARS stands for S is Spend Time with Friends. Uh, friends and hobbies t is tuck into healthy foods a is active and healthy r is rest and relaxation and s is safety so and i think i've seen that online i think you can actually yeah. down, go to you their website there's a website yeah. yeah so i'm actually going to go try into get into my daughter's school and uh, do a, a star session and they were calling out for people to to do it and they evaluate it within the sessions as well brilliant. so uh, it's a really good concept i think but oh, that's brilliant thank you so much and and so prevention's been hot there are, i think for my takeaways there are some three big hot topics that have come out of this there were the fingers program has been talked about a lot across multiple sessions prevention and technology have definitely been hot topics as well and then there's been this underlying theme that they've rightly so made an important focus on is just how much their European Working Group for Carers and European Working Group of People Living with Dementia have been involved in the programming of the entire event. And not just in deciding what sessions what will happen, but then have actually gotten practically involved in delivering plenaries, chairing and hosting sessions, leading some of their own work. Uh, there is no other conference like this that has that level of engagement of people. They might, conferences sure, have people living with dementia give the opening talk or but not actually kind of hand over a good portion of the program to say that they could do that. Um, it's Chris's last year, isn't it? Which is quite sad. Chris Roberts, who yeah. was on that Highlights podcast last year, he's been on a couple of times before as well. I, I guess he's coming to the end of his term. I asked him what he was going to do. He said he's going to do absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'll he'll live up to that promise because I know Chris, he can't say no. If, be a big I say this way. as Chris Roberts is just, Kind of, we're talking to him about hosting the new podcast series with the Dem Colm oh, Ark wow. fellow. So he's not going to be doing nothing. Um, so I've made some notes here. Um, the European Working Group, People with Dementia, and the Carers European Working Group has done lots across the week, as we said. Chris Roberts has been amazing. Uh, there's also been some new people. In fact, 53. He was brilliant. I was going to go. 15 of the members of the working group gave keynotes, including Kevin Quaid, Pierre Knusden, uh, Vera Rysaba. 
Um, and uh... yeah, Mar- Marguerite was amazing. Uh, you know, one-liners. Like my, my diagnosis was really, really difficult, but um, my doctor wasn't at fault. She was frightened. My doctor was frightened. Yeah. She gave the the opening plenary actually involved um, four was it four or five of the people in with dementia taking to the stage and that was a big room with a thousand in person people registered taking to the big stage to talk about um, their passions and their experience their disease which was inspiring um, we've actually I've been recording this week uh, some interviews with uh, seven of those people. So you'll check out a YouTube channel. They'll be coming on there soon in a collaboration with Alzheimer Europe to be able to talk about their experience of being involved in presenting at the conference. So do check out and wait for those. Um, I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to go back to you all for another quick highlight um, um, before we come back. I'll come back to you, Caroline. You go first this time. Okay, so just really quickly, there was a um, project called ReCage, which was a really interesting title given what it was about. It was about the viability of special care units. um, And it was from researchers from Italy, Greece and Netherlands. Um, and it was really interesting because there's lots of problems with special care units. There's problems with the retention of staff because there's high emotional labour, problems with the environment that we've, we've already talked about. And then we know that there's lots of research around the poor quality of life that people um, have, both staff and residents in special care units. Um, so this research was basically looking at all these different aspects, including the cost effectiveness of special care units and um, uh, patient quality, something life measure, which is about um, you know life, how whether it reduces or extends life expectancy, and basically it reduces life expectancy. So there's um, lots around human rights, uh, led by people living with dementia. Actually, Recage actually stands for Respectful Caring for Agitated Elderly, but I just thought the term Recage was um, wholly inappropriate given what it was mm. about, but very um, interesting research, particularly that it, it's not cost-effective. Yeah, and we know that the, there's been that terrible kind of backslide into using antipsychotic medications during the pandemic, hasn't there? So more appropriate now than ever. Thank you, Caroline. Danielle? I'll mention my favourite poster. And you were talking earlier about how, uh, you know, you had a title that I think made it what you were over what cancer. And the one that um, I think engaged quite a lot of people today was the one of Barbie. Yeah. So there's a big poster of Barbie. Maybe you can show it on your list. <laughs> big poster of Barbie and it caught everybody's eye and stopped to look at it. And that was um, somebody, and I don't know his name, so maybe I shouldn't. It was an Irish study. It was the HSC were in collaboration with them. And it was about diagnosing dementia. So how to communicate a diagnosis of dementia. But the post didn't have much information about the project. It had a QR code, which it seems to be a theme of the conference. The QR code on every uh, every. Wait, so what was the relevance to Barbie? Pretty much nothing, I don't think. <laughs> it was <laughs> just that. How would Barbie know? Yeah, no, sure. Because she's eighty. What's her? Is she eighty-three or so? This was clickbait. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, very effective. It worked, and people stopped. So, it, I mean, if the if the I mean. If the goal is to stop people to engage them in a discussion about your research, a poster when when like the poster stopped people in their tracks because it is that's very effective, very effective. So it made me think about how I would design a poster. So that's giving you ideas for next time. Yeah, very. 
What was your other one? Well, my other one was uh, on the theme of dementia prevention again. And um, I don't think we can go without, if anybody was in the dementia prevention sessions, acknowledging the work of Maastricht University because they nearly presented every single thing. I think everybody from Maastricht University presented at this conference. But the um, study that stood out the most for me and I'm really bad at pronouncing names, so I apologise to this person. It's Jerome Brinsma from Maastricht, and he spoke about the Lethe study, and his work within the Lethe study was to get the perspectives of lifestyle-related behaviour change for dementia risk reduction, which was a qualitative interview to study of uh, the general population in the Netherlands about how they want to um, engage with risk reduction advice. And some of the things he said were really interesting and it, and it comes back to the point of if we're doing intervention studies, what do put, how do the public want us to be telling them about how to reduce their risks? If we want them to enact change and all be healthier, uh, to make their brains healthier, how do people want to know about it? And uh, some of the interesting findings for him were that people were a bit ambivalent about the changes they could make, but they were almost waiting for a wake up call. So they wanted something to happen in life there was significant health uh, problem for them to then think, oh, I need to do something about it. Yeah. Um, and that they had a, a bit of an all or nothing approach so that they would change everything unhealthy they were doing about their life rather than just chipping away at the little bits. Yeah, which is so, is it really? But it's really interesting that if we're designing interventions to change the general population's unhealthy habits, how do they want to know and uh, how can we best design our interface? Well, and also as well, back to, we talk about person-centered care all the time. We should be talking about person-centered change in that way as well, where there will be some people that just, they, they can't do little incremental changes. They need to go all in. It's like the people who like the, you know, the, the fast, the high fasting, low calorie diets, who that's the only thing that works for them. And then there are other people who like Weight Watchers where they just knock a few calories off. Mm-hmm. I can see that being working. Lots of those people are also Interdem members, and we should say Interdem's very, very present during the conference. So many awesome early career researchers from Interdem have been presenting work from their PhD projects, many of whom uh, were on the podcast last year as well. I saw Gianna Cole give a great presentation. I saw um, Sarah Bartles was there as well. We've had Chalet Dupont, uh, who were on the podcast before. Who else? Elise Parkinson gave a great talk on drink and she did a podcast with us a few weeks ago on hydration and that was a poster too. Anyway, that's enough. I'm just making sure there's so many people we can mention. I'll come to you now, Monica. I was just going to also quickly mention just poster, poster quality, because I think it's underappreciated how long it takes to make a poster, the effort to think about how to visually summarise your research, print them and then travel out here to Finland with them. So just to acknowledge all I'm using those. Yeah. <laughs> Price winner. Not just the foldy kind. Yeah, I agree. Well, and I think, you know, that's the, the great thing about these international conferences, that there was quite a lot of research about um, ethnicity and culture in research. And one of my highlights was Dr. Jennifer Lim, who's University of uh, Wolverhampton. And she was doing sort of ethnographic study as a Chinese person, trying to access the Chinese community to do, I think it was called the Think Brain Intervention or something like that. Um, with Chinese communities in the UK to talk about dementia, to understand it, to get their perspectives on, you know, accessing care and treatment. And what kind of struck me the most, actually, specifically with Jennifer's talk, was the the lack of consistent terminology 
to even just say the word dementia. Mm. Um, and we, we heard that as well um, today in the closing session that there's you know not a word for dementia in lots of languages. And I just think that it's it's just so interesting thing to think about that because it, it you know causes a problem with diagnosis, with understanding, even with research that there might be you know lots of people to talk to about their experience, but they don't know the word dementia. They don't know that that's what they yeah. think. Someone was saying in their language, dementia actually just means madness. But Jennifer was talking about how um, when she was sort of working with people living with dementia in Chinese communities. They said to her that they didn't want to use the term dementia as the kind of clinically accepted term. They had a completely different term that they preferred, but that has no translation in the English language. So I, I just found that really interesting. That is interesting. And when you talk about the inequalities <laughs> and and reaching diverse people for participation, of course there was this. There was a. They've had a session with LGBTQ plus session specifically on that which i think is the first time i've seen that here at this conference as well to talk about you know how we can better engage with communities which we've also we did a recruitment show on the podcast uh the two shows ago i think was a one on recruitment and we're gonna revisit that topic as well to talk about involving more diverse communities in in study participation and in study delivery victoria so i guess my as a message with picking up on the idea that people with lived experience are you know very happily involved in designing the, the program and then also co-presenting in some of the sessions. So as well, the, the public involvement session today, day three, you know, he, hearing the kind of co-presenter talking about their own experiences was, was very powerful. Uh, one of the sessions uh, was presented by Anna Smith from Outside Society together with Michael Booz bringing that kind of lived experience perspective and a lot about how he spoke about what research had offered him that he described how having a diagnosis of dementia was like someone had turned off a light, but actually becoming involved as a, as a contributor in lived experience had brought back some of that, that light to his experience. And he also spoke about how public involvement to researchers who might be concerned that actually their voice will take over the research. He described an analogy that, that public involvement is like a sat-nav idea that it's a voice guiding you that can help you kind of navigate as a researcher, doesn't take over, but helps kind of steer the project. And I thought that analogy was, was really helpful. And also speaking about how actually, because, you know, that the, the research offers hope to people and that actually, you know, they can be that kind of cheering to you as researchers as well. So when you, you know, encounter difficulties or not funding or, or all those kind of challenges that you come across, actually they can... They can help motivate you and kind of cheer you all yeah. because they're, you know, they're, they're really wanting research to kind of bring more hope in the future. So I thought that again was a was a very kind of powerful message. And also think about one of the, one of the other contributors as well spoke about how actually the learning from being involved in projects uh, as a public involvement contributor had actually helped them develop their learning as well and spoke about how it had been catnip to the brain, help keeping their brain active because they were learning uh, as and contributing as well. So. Yeah, all those kind of messages. Yeah. Cut stool. I agree. I mean, I think one of the challenges we always have with these podcasts is there is so much we could sit here and talk about. We've only gone around the table once for sure, twice for sure research. And, but what we'll do is why don't we just, are there any fire, let's fire out some names of people who, we don't have to talk about their talks, but who are the names of the people you've seen you present who you would suggest if you've got access to the online platform, go and have a look. So Tiffany James. Tiffany James, Harriet Demnetz-King. Yep, uh, we talked about Elise earlier, Pascal Hines. Oh, Victoria Tischler, 
We've spoken to the work on arts. Um, anybody else? Zena Aldridge. Zena, yeah, that was... Um, the, she got a very powerful presentation about end of life, the experiences of Kesta. Uh, Esther Gurins, who was on the podcast, as Pascal Hines, I think, have mentioned. Bryony Waters uh, had a poster, which was interesting too. And the people that won the awards last night, it's, it's well worth mentioning. Yeah, well. they're diverse, were well, not diversity. What were yeah, they? it was anti-stigma. Anti-stigma. And Touchstone won them. From, the, yeah. That's the, one of the projects from Leeds, yeah. uh, the Touchstone one. But there were others. She's been going there 10 years, I think. I'm going to say um, also Nicholas Scaramis, Scaramis, who's a neurologist, um, uh, talked about nutrition. And they said that there's been lots of research done on healthy dietary patterns for risk reduction uh, but none of these have ever really looked at chrononutrition and um, precision nutrition as avenues that need more explanation to look at the times of day when you eat how and when and how that should change according to that which I thought was fascinating and a hot topic at the moment as well we've had some stuff on uh, environment as well on air pollution although I don't think there was anything new but there was lots that just add to continue to justify why air pollution's been added to the list of official risk factors. Anybody else? I got an, uh, Nicholas Pillen? Pillen? Elaine? Nicholas Pillen. Nicholas Pillen. He gave the keynote this morning. Another hot topic was about uh, drug trials and um, the efficacy and safety of the new drug trials. Yeah, that, that's really... Do you know what? Not as much talk about lecanemad as you might have been expected, or blood biomarkers. There's been some talk about the position, and there was something about, I think there was one of the breakout sessions was on preparedness for delivery. Although, interestingly, the very last session of today, preparedness for delivery in terms of how you should prioritise, people thought that was the least thing that should be prioritised if funding came about. There are lots of people that would disagree with that right now with the need for more scanning equipment and stuff like that. He gave a really nice, like, critical view of it. So it showed the more personal perspectives of people yeah. when it came to, like, the risks of being involved in those trials. So it's worth the listen, I think. Brilliant. Victoria, Caroline, last chance to see the plugs. Um, I just, I really liked the presentation by Eileen Harkus-Murphy, where she talked about trauma-informed approach. We need a lot more of that in dementia care because it's evolved in mental health over many years, but it's still relatively new in dementia care. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Meg Wyatt uh, from University of West London talking about arts-based approaches. That's an inclusive methodology, particularly of people with more advanced dementia really like. And this isn't her set, but I think it's really important to bring in the Finnish saying of Sisu. I don't know if anyone's heard it. I went on a walking tour the first morning. And Sisu is the Finnish term for, you know, like courage, bravery, to like really go at something. And I think, even if people haven't known the term, that's sort of been the the story of the conference, especially with, you know, how involved people living with dementia are and that opening ceremony, just how emotive that was and how dedicated people really are. And, that, you know, it takes a lot to see soon. Right. That's a great way to finish. Oh, there is, and one person who would say that, who told me, I learned that phrase for the first time today, was from Petri Lampinen, who is one of the European Working Group members who is Finnish, uh, I interviewed him this week, and um, he also gave a talk in English, despite being finished, which was incredible. So, so yes, do have a look 
Look him up. Petri is an incredible person. Thank you so much. I'm afraid that really is all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank my brilliant guests, Dr. Victoria Shepherd, Dr. Danielle Jones, Dr. Monica Leverton, and Caroline Bartle. Um, we'll be back in two weeks' time when we're going to be joined by Professor Nick Fox, Professor Sir John Hardy, and Dr. Kath Mumry to talk about Lecanemab, Demanemab, and Amyloid, which we've said needs some more discussion. Uh, and there's going to be some big news in that podcast as well. So a little bit of the Easter egg. So make sure you come back in two weeks' time to hear that. But for now, I'm Adam Smith, and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. The Dementia Researcher Podcast was brought to you by University College London with generous funding from the UK National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association, and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review, and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk